Well, as Matt said, we're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, and we come uh, today for the second time already in the study, even though we're only about halfway through the book, uh, to the topic of prayer. And I thought that was kind of instructive in and of itself. In other words, we're just shy of the halfway point, and already this is the second time Paul's coming and saying, hey, listen, here's something we need to talk about. We need to talk about prayer. So you get the impression that for the Apostle Paul, and when you read the life of Jesus, for Jesus, and well, basically every significant Christian who's ever done anything for God, you, you kind of get the impression that prayer is a really big deal. So I want to start with this question. The question is, how big of a deal is prayer to you? Like if you had to scale it out on one to 10, 10 being this is really significant, like it's the most significant, it's the best use of my time, and one being, all right, Tom, I'm just going to be honest with you, okay, just don't even do this. Like I have no faith in this, I have no faith for this, I have no time for this, this is actually not a part of my life. How would you grade yourself out? And and please understand, I'm not asking you this question to try to make you feel bad. In other words, I'm not hoping that by means of this message, I can make you feel guilty enough to take prayer from like a three to a 5.5, you know, for like about a week and a half, because that's about as long as the guilt's going to last. And then it's going to start dripping back down to where it was. It's not the goal at all. What I'm hoping is that by means of this message, the Apostle Paul, not me, the Holy Spirit, not me, is going to give you a glimpse of the beauty of prayer, like he's going to share with you a vision for prayer that is so great, it's so powerful, it's so amazing, it's so beautiful, that you'll look at it and go, well, how can I not do this? I have to make time for this. Like, I need to reprioritize my life and get all about this. Andrew Murray is one of my favorite uh, people. Uh, He died in like 1917, but like through his writings, this guy is my buddy. I mean, he's my friend. He's he's my pastor in a lot of ways. I love basically everything he writes about everything, but I really, really love what he writes on prayer. And I just want to read you just a snippet because this man understood the biblical vision of prayer. He says this, he says, though in its beginnings, prayer is so simple that the feeblest child can pray, yet it is at the same time the highest and holiest work to which man can rise. It's fellowship with the unseen and most holy God. The powers of the eternal world have been placed at its disposal. It is the very essence of true religion, the channel of all blessings, the secret of power in life, not only for ourselves, but for others, for the church, and even for the world. It is in prayer that God has given us the right to take hold of him and his strength. It is in prayer that the promises, meaning the promises of God to you, wait for their fulfillment, the kingdom for its coming, the glory of God for its full revelation. I hope some point in my life I can write anything that sounds even approaching, you know, like as profound as that. Okay, that man gets it. And where does he get it? I mean, he gets it from Jesus and he gets it from all over the Bible, but he gets it in part from the Apostle Paul who begins this prayer, the second one of this letter, and we're not even halfway through that we're going to look at today in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14, with these words and their significant words. He says, for this reason. Okay, if you're going to understand the prayer, you got to go, all right, so what's the reason? What's the reason? 
If you've been with us, you know the reason, and the reason is this. Paul is overawed. He is overwhelmed. He is stunned by the reality that Almighty God, through Jesus Christ, is gathering up a people for himself, made up of every different kind of person on the planet, and then here's what God, through Christ, does. He so forgives us, he so cleanses us, he so renews us, that he makes us capable of being inhabited by, lived in by him. He fills us. He inhabits us, me, you, and collectively all of us with himself. He lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is a presence in the world, and his presence is through the Spirit, through us. And Paul is like, guys, I mean, wow. That's astonishing. He says, look, for that reason, here's what I'm going to do today in my prayer. He says, I, Paul, bow my knees. Now, why is that a big deal? Because that's very different. I mean, the typical prayer posture in Paul's day was like this. Eyes open, face toward the heavens, hands outstretched as if to catch the prayer or the answer to the prayer that God is obviously going to give to us when we pray these things. You know, like that's the prayer posture. And I like that prayer posture. It's a posture of expectancy. It's saying, Lord, I am looking to you expectantly. I'm not just throwing up a prayer and going, I don't know, maybe it'll help, you know, but I'm going, no, 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 you're my father. You hear me. You answer. You are all powerful. Like I am looking, you know, like a punt returner for the ball. You know I mean? Like I'm going, Hey, I know it's coming. Paul's like, that's great. Do that. But in light of the fact that God through Christ has claimed us and filled us with his spirit. He says, today I'm going to pray like this. Because it's that big a deal. And what I'm going to ask for, wow. Paul says, no, no, no. Today is a posture of awe. Today is a posture of reverence. Today is a posture of your God and I'm not, and I uniquely get that in this moment. Today is a posture of gratitude like good grief. I can't believe you've chosen me and to fill me with your spirit. Today is a posture of total and absolute surrender. Lord, if you don't do what I pray for here, God, it's not going to happen. And I just so badly want it to happen. I want it to happen for me, Paul, and I want it to happen for your people. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Why? Because when you trace your genealogy back far enough, you end up with the Creator. He is the Father of, of everything and of everyone. So then, like on my knees... Paul says, I'm going to pray. And I want you to look at what he prays for. Because he doesn't pray for the marriages of the people in this church. He doesn't pray for their parenting and for their kids and for all of those things. Those are big deals. He doesn't pray for that. He doesn't pray for their health. He doesn't pray for their finances and for their businesses and for their, all of the stuff that's bothering them and all the things in life that, you know, just constantly swirl around our heads and drive us crazy. And he doesn't pray for any of that stuff. And it isn't that those things aren't to be prayed for or aren't significant. It's just that Paul's going, look, God, if you'll do this, this thing that I'm going to ask you for, like if you'll do this, most of the rest of that stuff is going to take care of itself. Like if you'll do this for husbands and wives, this, this happens. This, this, we don't even need to pray about this. Or for kids and parents, we don't even need to pray about this. Like 
all of this stuff starts getting cleaned up, like this is the thing. This is what I want you to do. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And then here it is. Here's the prayer. He says that according to the riches of God's glory, and hang on a second, how rich is God in terms of his glory? Does he ever run out? Like, does he go, I don't know, I'm kind of running low. You know, it's like I've got a cash flow issue with regard to my glory. No, it's infinite. Infinite, according to the infinite riches of your infinite glory. God, you have overwhelming ability to answer this prayer. So I'm asking you to do it. According to the infinite riches of his infinite glory, he may grant you to be what? Strengthened with power. How? Through his spirit. Where? Where he lives. In your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell, that is to say, so that Christ might fully manifest his life in your hearts and therefore in your lives through faith. The heart is the command and control center of your life. It's, it's biblically speaking, it's where you think, it's, it's from which you speak, it's from which you act, it's from which you do. He's like, I'm praying that the Spirit of God will take over me and will take over you will truly make us vessels for Jesus who takes up his life and his power and his spirit within us and then lives through us. What does that take? Paul says, I want you to have this power, first of all, so that you, and this is what's going to transform you, so that you would comprehend God's love for you. Paul says, I want you to be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Holy Spirit who, newsflash, lives in you, whether you realize it or not, whether you live that way or not, whether you're conscious of that or not. He's like awakened to this reality. He's tapped into by prayer, by the way, which is why I'm praying for you. And I'm praying all of this that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend together with all of the saints. It's for every person who claims Jesus. What is the breadth? What is the width of this love wide enough to encompass people from every different place on the planet, every different kind of person, including me and you? And what is the length of this love which stretches into eternity? It never ends for you. What is the height of this love which spans heaven and earth for you? And what is the depth of this love that descended into the grave to claim you and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And maybe you're thinking, you know, Tom, I know this passage of Scripture. I've read this passage of Scripture. I've taught this passage of Scripture. Not just this. Like, I know all about the love of God. Like, I know. You don't need to tell me to comprehend. I already got this. I've been studying the Bible for years and years and years and years. And, you know, I would just say, okay, well, maybe you do. Or maybe you just know a lot about it. And that's actually not what Paul is commending. He doesn't say, I want you to know about it. He's saying, I want you to know it. When you come to the little word no in the Bible, it's not talking about knowledge. There is a content to it, and the content matters. I'm all about the content. I like the content. Get as much of the content as you can, but, but understand the content is not the goal. The experience is the goal. Knowledge, biblically speaking, is experiential. And for all of the things that we can say about love, I hope that we could all agree that love is experiential, like it's something you experience. When somebody loves you, you just don't know about it only in your mind, Right? You know it in your heart. You can feel it. You experience it in a thousand ways in your life. Their love surrounds you, compels you. It encourages you. 
It challenges you. It changes you. Paul's like, look, I I want you as Christians to experience the greatest love there is. Whose love is greater? Like, how could anyone compare? The greatest love in the universe has been bought and paid for by Jesus. And I want you to experience that, not just know about it, but know it in a way that surpasses the knowledge just of your mind. But you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Good news, he lives in you. And that power is unleashed through prayer. So Paul prays, first of all, for the Spirit-given power necessary to comprehend God's love for you. But then secondly, he prays for the Spirit-given power necessary to be filled with God's fullness. And please understand that those two ideas, love of God, transformational, and being filled with his fullness, are not two different concepts. They're one and the same. Like if you don't get the first one, forget the second. He makes that clear. He says, again, I want you to know the love of Christ. That surpasses just the knowledge of your mind. Why? So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is he saying? He's saying, look, when God, by the Spirit who lives in you, creates and gives to you the power to understand, not just with your mind, but to experience in your heart and in your life the transformational love of God, then you will be filled with the fullness of God. Why? Because you'll be dissatisfied with anything else. You'll start looking at yourself and going, well, you know, I mean, I guess I could fill me with me, but why? I know the love of God. Like, I want to be filled with him. You'll look at other people that you've been trying to fill yourself with, and frankly, it's unfair to them. It it doesn't work. You weren't made to be satisfied by them. And you'll say, you know, I'm going to let you off the hook here because I'm not trying to be filled by you. I'm trying to be filled by him. You'll look at money and things and success, whatever that means, all the stuff that we chase after and spend all of our days and minutes going after, okay? And you'll start going, wow, do I really want to be filled with this stuff? I mean, I could be filled with God. It's like, you know what? Hey, keep the gifts. Give me the giver and don't just give me a little bit of the giver. Lord, fill me up. I want to be filled with with the beauty of you. I want to be filled with the power of you. I want to be filled with the wisdom of you. I want to be filled with the perspective of you. I want to be filled with the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness of you. I want the humility of you. I want the beauty of you. Like, God, I want you. Fill me with your fullness. The word fullness speaks of total saturation. Just picture like a a sponge, you know, like full of water at the bottom of a full bathtub, okay? It can't even float. I mean, it's so saturated. There's no room in it to be saturated with anything else. Paul's like, I am praying that the Spirit is going to give you power to comprehend the love of God because that's going to so transform you that you will then be filled with his fullness because you won't be satisfied with anything less. But not only that, he says, lastly, I'm praying for the Spirit-given power necessary for you to learn how to live for God's glory. He says this beginning in verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, which as an aside should really encourage us to pray. It's not calling us to a mild faith in God. Now to him who is able and, you know, to do some things and it might be helpful on occasion. And Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, 
But then here's my favorite part. According to the power of the Holy Spirit is the idea. At work, where? Where he lives, if you're a Christian. Within us. Within you. He says, let me cap it off. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever and ever. You know, I think that we run through life wondering what to live for or, in this case, perhaps who. And seeking by means of our effort to create something that feels like it might be significant and meaningful and valuable and I don't know, you know, like I was here for a reason perhaps, you know, and if we can just get this and do that and claim this and they applaud me and if this happens and then maybe and, you know, and God's like, look, can we just stop that? I'm going to tell you, I have made you to live for the best and greatest and most dignified purpose ever because I am the highest being. There is nothing and no one like me. I've made you to live for me. And when my love by the power of the Spirit lays hold and transforms you and you're filled for me, that's what you'll do. It's sort of like a cascading set of things. He's like, Spirit lives in you. He has the power. It's unlocked by prayer to allow you to experience the transformational love of God. When that happens, you'll be dissatisfied with anything and anyone other than him, and you'll be filled with his fullness. When that happens, you'll look at your life and go, good grief, I only have so many days and hours and minutes and seconds in this life. Why would I spend it on anything other than God, on anything other than advancing him and praising him and living for him? He is everything to me. And I need to help the world see that, well, he's, he is everything. So what is prayer, Paul's prayer fundamentally? What is he asking for? He's saying, God, your spirit lives in your people. Awaken your people to the reality that your spirit lives in your people. And rise up within your people, individually and collectively, and take us over. His prayer is for the spirit. And Jesus tells you to pray for the same thing. Luke 11, beginning in verse 9, he says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. To the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then comparing the heavenly father to earthly fathers, people like me, he says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? He says, if you then, who are evil, as compared to the heavenly Father, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give good gifts to his children? It's not what he says. Now, he does that, but he singles out the greatest gift. All the rest follow. You know, it's like, of course, he'll give you all these other things, but let's not talk about the lesser things. How much more... Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? I love what Andrew Murray says about this as well. He says, the best gift a good and wise father can bestow on earth to his child is his own spirit. This, he says, is the great object of a father in education. Okay, what's the great object? Well, here it is, to reproduce in his child his own disposition and character. 
If the child is to know and understand his father as he grows up, he must enter into all of his father's will and plans. If he is to have the highest joy in his father and the father in him, then he must be one of one mind and body with his father. And so it is impossible, he says, to conceive of God bestowing any higher gift on his child than this, his own spirit. Paul's like, awaken your people to the reality, God, that by your spirit you live in us. Give us a desire that we might cry out that by your spirit you would rise up within us. That by your spirit you would give us the power to comprehend a love that is infinite though we are finite. To be transformed by it. To be changed, to, be, to want to be filled alone by you and to live for your glory. So with all that in mind... I want to challenge you to pray. You know, Matt talked a little bit about this before I came up, but this Wednesday night starts Lent. And we're going to be here at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, and I hope that you can make it. It's a sweet service in which we deal with something that we try to deny at every other moment of life, and that is our own mortality. It is the reality that from ashes we have come and to ashes we will return, not like maybe it's going to happen. I don't know. Some people miss out on that piece. No, no, no. From dust you have come, to dust you shall return. It is a good thing spiritually to confront that. But only if you confront it in faith, knowing that from the first page of the Bible where God creates the man from the dust of the earth and then breathes into him and he becomes a living soul, God is saying, hey, listen, I bring life out of dust. I'm the resurrection God. It is a season of repentance. It is a season of humility. It is a season of seeking after God and seeking after him in faith. It is a season which we're moving toward the day of resurrection. And we remember that he was raised for us. And as we go, we're asking the spirit to bring us life, man. Breathe life into us. And as Matt talked about, as part of this journey... This year, we have a prayer challenge. It's 40 days. And you can get it via email or on the app. And if you go on the app or the website, it'll tell you how to do that. But every day at 11.09, after that statement of Jesus, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. All right, we're going to pray. You're going to get a push every day or an email and it's going to give you a verse on prayer. It's going to give you a short reflection on prayer. It's going to give you a model prayer because you might be sitting there going, I don't know what to say. All right, well, here are some illustrations and examples along the way, and then it's going to say, pray for this. Prayer prompt, and not just for yourself and your family and this church and our school, but for the city, for, for the people of God all throughout South Florida, all the churches, all the schools. Pray this. And then here's the catch. You ready? This is going to be fun. You're going to love this. Here's how I want you to do it, like this. I want you to nail to do it. And obviously, that's not going to work if you're driving down the street, okay? I mean, you know, like, not going to work. You know, you're in a business meeting. It might be awkward. I get that. But you've got time. You plan your life. Mark it out. So that doesn't happen. But it will, over the course of 40 days, I mean, if you do that, it will create awkward moments for you. I know this personally because we started out the year as a staff and as the Church United leadership team with a 40-day kneel and pray prayer challenge after this prayer from Paul that we looked at today. So every day at 314, 
we knelt and prayed. And most of those days, praise Jesus, I was in my office, you know, because I make my schedule too. But I mean, there were times when I was not. So I was at the Galleria Mall, sitting in my truck in the parking garage. It's 314. True story. And I feel like the Lord is going, so are you going to get out or what are you going to do? You know, I'm like, Lord, what am I trying to prove a point? Yeah, actually. It's a little test from God. How bad do you want it, Tom? How big of a deal is this really to you? It's a silly little thing to get out of your truck and kneel in a parking garage, isn't it? I mean, it certainly feels silly when you do it. Trust me on that one. You know, but I'm arguing. I'm like, Lord, I, I mean, I, I'm going to be kneeling in the parking garage. I mean, what if some, I mean, people drive through a parking garage. Like, what if somebody stops and says, hey, are you okay? I mean, what am I going to say? I lost my contact. I wear glasses. It's not going to work, you know, like. He says, Tom, this is South Florida. Nobody's going to stop to see if you're okay. <laughs> Just be glad if they don't run you over. So I did. Another time I was at the beach, because that's what we pastors do. We just go to the beach and then we come here on Sunday. Um, What? Um, No, it was Monday and that's my day off. So I took a book and I went to the beach and I had a chair and I'm sitting in my beach chair. I'm all by myself. And, you know, now it's 314, and I'm thinking, oh, crud, I got this couple sitting behind me, and then these teenagers are playing something over here, you know, and family, like, over there. And, and uh, you know, the Lord's like, well, what, what are you going to do here? Are you going to, I mean, going to kneel in the sand or what? So I knelt in the sand. A couple times I was at Holy Cross Hospital. My wife's mom was in the hospital for a while, and... And 314 came, and guys, I'm a germaphobe. Like, I I don't, you know, just going in the hospital freaks me out. I'm not going to lie. Like, the fact that my shoes have touched the floor in the hospital makes me want to burn them when I leave. So (laughs) my body touching the floor in a hospital, so I went in the bathroom, and I put paper towels down. (laughs) I did. And then like this... I went down, and then I prayed and got back up because I still have good knees. Sign up for it. It's coming at 11.09, okay? Enter into the school of prayer during Lent. For 40 days, say, this is one thing I do. I might do some other things also, but this thing I'm going to do. I'm going to read that thing. I'm going to get down on my knees. I will humiliate and debase myself if necessary so that I can commune with my God and so that I can ask him to take me over and to take you over and to take us over and to take his people over to pour out his spirit in this area and this region in our day. Let's stop playing around with the Christian faith and give ourselves to the Lord wholeheartedly and let him use this as a part of that process. So how big of a deal is prayer to you? Scale of one to 10, where are you at? It's not so much about where you're at. It's about where do you go? 
I'm going to give you some questions, okay, sort of diagnostic. Again, don't feel bad. That's not the point. It's just sort of like, all right, honest starting point. So here we go. How much time do you spend each week in prayer? Who or what occupies your prayer life? Like, is it all about me and mine and this and that and all of the things that, I mean, because I do this, you know, that I'm obsessed over, that I'm stressed over, that I'm worried about, oh, God, bail me out of this and bail me out of that and bail me out of this and bail me out of that and bail me out of this and bail me out of that. Really, it's just a prayer about me, Lord. Sorry, forgive me, but bail me out of this and bail. Or rise up and take me over. What would you say, your knowledge of God's love, would you say that it's contained in your head or do you know it in your heart and life? Because when you're loved, man, you can feel it, you experience it, you can touch it, you can see it, you know it in a way that isn't academic. How filled or saturated are you with God right now? Like percentage, you know, 35%, you know, whatever. Whose glory do you live for? Because there's a glory that lasts, that's just his, and then there's the glory of everything and everyone else. And will you commit? Will you commit? Let's pray together. Would you guys stand? Father, we come to you and we are so thankful for Jesus. God, part of what we need the power of your spirit to do is to create in us a faith that the strength of his blood is so great that it can actually make us clean enough, that is to say perfectly clean, for you to come in. Give us faith for that, Lord. Let us lay all of our things at your feet, all of our errors and foolishness and, you know, and give us faith to believe that Christ is so great that he wipes that out, that he takes that away, and that you, God, by your spirit, live in us. The God who spoke the worlds into being, contained in the clay jar of me. Lord, overawe us with that. Forgive us of all of our frivolity, all of the ways that we treat you as though you're insignificant. We speak to you, but only when we need something. We come to you, but only with our stuff. We talk to you, but only because we want to enlist you in our plan. Lord, we want you to do what we want, well, you to do. God, forgive us of these things. I want you to take a moment and think about what is the thing, like more than anything else, that has hindered you from having an active, vibrant prayer life. And just take a moment and talk to the Lord about that. Just confess that. Lay that at his feet. Forsake it. Repentance means I give it up. I turn away. I walk away from it. Not I feel bad. I'm sorry. Please forgive me, but I'm about to do it again. In fact, I'm going to do it in three minutes. And I, you know, no, no, no. No, it's I, I need to just lay this down and, and, and turn my back on it that I might walk toward you, Lord. Whatever's held you up in your prayer life, just take a moment. And confess those things to him.
Lord, if we're honest, um, the idea of you rising up and taking us over feels kind of threatening. The idea of surrendering control is not one most of us gravitate toward very naturally. God, rationally, we understand that you are all wise, that we are not. That you see all things that we do not. That from everlasting to everlasting, you are good and we are not. That your love is infinite and ours is not. That you are utterly and completely selfless and we are not. That you lead by serving and we do not. Like there's nothing rational about the idea that I should hold on to my life and I should govern over it and I am somehow threatened now by the idea of surrendering it to you. Take a moment and pray to the Lord about whatever it is that causes you to wonder about that, causes you to be hesitant in that regard, that says, no, I'm... I'm, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not ready to do that, or I, I, I have not been ready to do that, because whatever that thing is that's been threatened, that is an alternate God. We call those idols. It's not an idol made by your hands, I get that, but it is nevertheless what you really love, what you really trust in, what you really seek your comfort or identity or whatever it may be in. Take a minute and confess that to the Lord and turn from it. we come to claim the blood of Jesus on our behalf by faith. He paid it all and all to him we owe. Impress upon us the power of that blood on our behalf that we are forgiven, that we are set free, that we are made new. And Holy Spirit, rise up in us. Teach us to pray. We ask this in Jesus' name.